0: For those who received it last night, I was rather brief in the preparation. Talking with a brother this morning, I appreciate the fact that he was trying to look and figure out what exactly I was going to be talking about from the passages that I listed last night. I wish I could say it was cleverness on my part, but it wasn't. just trying to make sure i gave you something to th- be thinking about before we came this morning as i said in my introduction though i'd like us to look at three instances of men who encountered the lord men who had encounters with god and see the personal caring nature of our god he is very tender he is very loving very merciful and we can look at passages of Scripture that say those things. We can look at instances of of different things in Scripture from a doctrinal standpoint. But you know, it's the personal stories that touch us the most. You know, if you look at TV, what is it that entertains people the most? Is it the PBS specials? You know, is it the political debates? Or is it? Stories, talking about people. That's why the Bible, think about it, if you look at the scripture, how much of it is actually devoted to what you might call didactic, which is teaching, theological works. There are some, you know, some of Paul's epistles are very much detailed, logic, involved theology in which he's explaining things about God, the universe, how things exist, salvation. But you know, those are kind of like this big. If you look at it in Scripture. What's this much? It's stories. It's history. It's God showing us through His actions what He's like. It's God displaying to us who He is and what He wants us to know about Him. So I've picked out three i talking with Brother Jonathan. He said, just pick something that's enjoyable, something that you'd like and get into and the people would like. Well, I enjoy it. I hope you'll enjoy it too. <laughs> Turn first to 2 Kings, chapter 22. I want us to look at three instances today of men who had encounters with the Lord. One is a king. One is a man with a handicap. And the third is a man who is despised by others. He wants to look at three different situations and hopefully in their situation something here will speak to you and encourage your heart in the Lord. Over in 2nd Kings chapter 22 we have one of the three great kings of the Old Testament. When you look through the writings of the kings Everyone is compared to what would arguably be the greatest man we know about in the Old Testament. And that's David. David is the epitome. David is the one that everyone is compared to. So when you start reading through the books of Kings and Chronicles, you will be seeing throughout there each of the kings and he's compared against David. When you look at the kings of Israel, it's real simple. He wasn't like David. And they go into some depth to explain how they weren't. Because none of the kings of Israel were any good whatsoever. They were all wicked kings. But on Judah's side, David's descendants, his grandsons, you had good kings, not so good kings, and bad kings. Just a little background, if you look in chapter 21, it talks about Manasseh when he started reigning. And if you were to read the account of Manasseh's life and other prophecies later, you find out that this was probably one of the worst kings of David's descent. He was terrible. He was awful. You come down to his son, Ammon, Ammon, verse 19 of chapter 21 and he's so bad, the Lord only lets him reign for a couple of years before he takes him out. So the background to Josiah's life is that his grandfather was probably the worst king that Judah ever had. His father was not much better. So he had a pretty bad line to, you know, he didn't have much to live up to. So in verse chapter 22 of Second Kings, starting at verse 1, It tells us Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign because his father died premature, relatively speaking. And he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adariah of Boshkath. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Good start. And walked in all the way of David, his father. Here the Lord gives us the clue to what this man was like. He was just like David. He didn't, he walked in everything that David did. And turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. Josiah walked a straight line. And it was a straight line we like to call it the highway of holiness. He walked in the way of the Lord directly. No deviation. He didn't even turn to the left or to the right. Walked straight down the pathway of the Lord. And it tells us, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah, that's when he was 26, that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azariah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. That he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it under the hand of the doers of the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Again, if we were to read previous chapters, Baal worship and other forms of abominations had taken over the religious life of Judah under his father and his grandfather, so that the temple of God had lain waste. It had fallen into disrepair. So here, he says, you know, money's been collected. Start repairing the temple. Give it to the... Let them that deliver it to the hand of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house unto the carpenters and the builders and the masons and to buy timber and hew stone to repair the house. How be it? little interesting sidelight, the Lord says, the Lord always likes to do things in fashion. In this case, he had raised up some other men of like spirit with Josiah in this kingdom. Because notice what it says. Howbeit there was no reckoning made with them of the money that was delivered into their hand. Because they dealt faithfully. Josiah didn't have to have an audit committee going behind the men who did this work. Because he knew they were faithful men. If he asked them to do it, if he gave them a command to do, they went out and did it. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Now we look at that and say, That's, isn't that strange? I mean, of course, where else are you going to find God's law but in his temple, in his house? That shows you how degenerate the nation had gotten under Manasseh, and under Ammon. They stopped reading from the book of the law of God. They would lost the Bible. It had not ruled. What was one of the commandments that Moses had commanded? Or actually, God, through Moses, let's put it right, had commanded that each of the kings was supposed to do when they had become king. One of the commandments was, and see, this was what? 450 some odd years before they even had a king. He had commanded that when he sat in his throne, he was supposed to himself, the king, copy out of the book of the law. Write it. He himself was to write his own copy, his own personal Bible. And during his reign, was supposed to have that read to him. So he knew what was going on. <clears throat> For two king kingdoms, that had been ignored. So that All of a sudden, they're clearing out the rubbish, they're getting things straightened up, and here's God's word. He brings it to the priest. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again, fulfilling his task of telling him how the rebuilding of the temple was going, the refurbishment, I should say, of the temple. And brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So this is the first time in his lifetime a young 26-year-old ruler is hearing the word of the Lord. We don't know what section it was from, but it was very obvious as soon as he started hearing what was read and thinking about his kingdom, thinking about what the nation was like under his father, under his grandfather, all the things that he had seen and had been taught and instructed to do, that they were wrong. They weren't right. They deviated from what God had wanted. What was his reaction? And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. He tore his clothes off. And in Scripture when someone does that, that's a sign of anguish. That's a sign of deep, abiding trouble in their heart. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest in a the son of Shaphan and Akbar, the son of Micaiah and Shaphan, the scribe and Asahiah, the son, the servant of the king saying, go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of the book that is found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book. To do according unto all that which is written concerning us. He knew right away we're in trouble. And again, what was his reaction? Was his reaction just, well, you know, things aren't right. Let's let's assemble a committee. Let's, Let's take a look and see what we need to do about this. No. He said, go to the men of God. Go to God and ask him, what can we do? We've offended you, Lord. What can we do to make it right? So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbar and Shaphan and Asahiah went unto Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they communed with her. And she said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Tell the man that sent you unto me. Thus saith the Lord. Behold. I will bring evil upon this place. And upon the inhabitants thereof. Even all the words of the book. Which the king of Judah. Hath read. Because they have forsaken me. And have burned incense unto other gods. That they might provoke me to anger. With all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall not be quenched. They go to the one person they knew, had the pipeline straight to God. And that was, the, that was the initial response. Tell him that it's too late. It's too late. Your fathers haven't looked for me. You're not. And the people aren't looking for me now. I've had enough. My judgment's going to come against this country. My people, I'm going to cast them out. And if we stop there, I mean, isn't that where we all stand before the Lord? In our sins? In our lives? If we look at it from the pure, righteous, holy nature of God? But it didn't stop there. But, verse 18, are you thankful for those discourse of disjunctions in the word of God but to the king of Judah which sent you to inquire of the Lord thus shall you say to him this was a personal message to Josiah thus saith the Lord God of Israel as touching the words which thou that's Personal pronoun. Hast heard. Because thine heart was tender, and thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord, when thou heardest what I spake against this place, and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And hast rent thy clothes, and wept before me. See, we didn't see that in in here. It wasn't told us that, but the Lord saw those tears, and he tells about them. I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. Your nation I'm not going to listen to. Your nation's down the tube. But you personally, oh yes, I'm listening to you, son. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered into the, thy grave in peace. And thine eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. And they brought the king word again. He had an encounter with the Lord through God's word. He saw where he was, where his people were. The area of his responsibility wasn't right, it tore him up. He went to the Lord. He cried before him. He said, Lord, what can we do? And the Lord sent him a word of peace. Part of the word was, it's too late for the kingdom. It's too late for the country. But you, you're not going to see all the evil I'm going to bring upon the place. And what is so wonderful, if you read the next chapter, if you read chapter 23... What would most people do when they got a nice word like that? You know? Find a nice hammock to go back and relax in, right? Enjoy. You know, the Lord's good to me. The Lord's blessing me. I'm not going to see all that's going to happen. That was not Josiah's heart. We won't read all the passages, but I'll summarize them for you quickly. In the next chapter, verses 1 through 3, he calls an assembly. Of all of Judah and of anyone who's in the surrounding areas. Remember, Israel had already been taken away by Assyria into captivity. So in Samaria, there were only a few remnants of the Jews left there. But he sent to them, as well as to those in Judah, to say, Come here, we're going to have a big meeting in the temple. When he calls them together in that meeting, he reads the commandments of the Lord. He reads the covenant that God had with Israel and he says, we're going to stand by this. He doesn't say, what are the boats? He says, we're going to do this. Then he puts legs to his words. He goes out immediately. I mean, they already started cleaning up the temple, right? What do they do next? He purges the temple. Again, they had brought elements of Baal worship? Baal worship? in Jehovah's temple. He just walked around and said, that, 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 out. Get it out of here now. There were idolatrous priests who served all of these pieces of Baal and Molech and other things there. He said, get them out of here. They don't belong in this place. There was a grove. I mean, some representation of a forest which is where the pagans always liked to serve their gods. He said, get it out of here. Cut it down. In the the trash heap, get it out of here. Very interesting. Very interesting. In verse 7, it tells us that right next door, right next door to the temple, were where the religious sodomites were. Okay? See, they liked all that Baal pagan worship. And the women used their houses to weave all their little accoutrements that went with the pagan worship. Josiah just walked out the door and said, Oh, let's urban renew this neighborhood. (laughs) Let's tear it down. Get it out of here. There are high places. All around the city. They came down under Josiah. There was Tophet, which was where Molech was worshipped. This is a place where they had a, history tells us they had some big bronze statue of whoever Molech was. And they would heat it up red hot and then the parents would stick their children in its arms. Bronze statue heated red hot, that's how they would sacrifice their children. He busted that thing up and had it thrown out of the city so that Moloch worship could no longer be be done in Jerusalem. The kings of Judah over time in Israel had gotten their chariots and their horses and dedicated them to sun worship. What did he do with that? Burned all the chariots, got rid of the horses. There were many altars, it tells us in verse 12, all around the city that other of the kings of Judah had put up to all the different whatever pagan god they like to worship. Now think about this. Precedent. Former kings of Judah. Precedent meant nothing to him. He had them torn down. If it wasn't according to what that book that he read from said, get rid of it. Look at verse 13 with me. And the high places that were before Jerusalem which were on the right hand of the mount of corruption which Solomon the king of Israel had builded for Ashtoreth the abomination of the Zidonians and for Chemosh the abomination of the Moabites and for Milcom the abomination of the children of Ammon did the king defile Solomon The wisest king who ever lived in the latter part of his days apostatized. We have it listed in Scripture. He started building these temples. He was smart enough not to do it inside Jerusalem itself, but just outside, on one of the hills just outside Jerusalem, he had built these temples. Did that bother, uh, you know, Josiah one little bit that he was... Did he think he was smarter than Solomon? In this case, yes. <laughs> because God had said, you shouldn't have anything to do with these things. So he tore them all down. He even went to Samaria, to Bethel. Remember, way back when, when the kingdom was divided, what happened? Jeroboam realized that, hey, if I've got people going up to Jerusalem to worship all the time, it's going to cause me some problems. They're going to want to go back under, you know, Rehoboam and the kings of Judah. So to keep them from doing that, I'll build them a golden calf here in Bethel. And they will call that the Lord. And they can worship there. And that's what they did. Well, Josiah went And destroyed that. Not only did he destroy it. He defiled it. He made sure to destroy it in such a way. That any of the worshippers of those gods. Would never want to do it ever again there. He took the bones of their priests. Who were buried in sepulchers nearby. And burned them on the altars. Before he destroyed the altars. And that was prophesied in scripture. That he would do that. So we see. All of this. He went back and he purified all of God's worship in the land. Then, if you look at verses 21 through 23, it tells us that then he instituted the Passover. And it tells us that there was not a Passover that was celebrated from the time of the judges all the way down to this. This is one of the greatest Passovers that Israel ever had. So, by his reading of God's word, it, it, he was compelled to force everybody to obey, to clean up the religion, and to worship God right. All because he read a couple of passages of scripture and found out that there was something wrong in his life. There was something wrong in the life of the nation. The Lord met him in his word. And look at what it accomplished. And it tells us in verse 25. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. you see similar words describing the other great king that was like David, Hezekiah. The difference is, it talks about how Hezekiah kept the word of God. Hezekiah had a godly father and grandfather. They may not have been as good as he was, but they worshipped the Lord appropriately. Looking at the difference in the wording, I've always come up with the fact that this was the greatest convert we have in the Old Testament. I mean, he had lived under pagan worship as the official worship of Israel, of Judah. When confronted with the word of God, he totally overthrew it, got rid of it, and reinstated what was proper. So, that, so here's the difference. We have David, our, our exemplar. We've got Hezekiah, who always had the revelation of God, was raised in it, taught it, and he lived by it. And then we have Josiah, who didn't start that way, but once he was had God's word revealed to him, he did, at that point forward, follow fully in the Lord. Wonderful man. One of my favorites. Turn now to John chapter 9. Let's look at another man. Who had encounter with the Lord. This one directly. The next two we'll look at, or the other two I should say we'll look at, directly had contact with the Lord. Not indirectly. Mediated contact through his word, but directly. John chapter 9. Starts off with Jesus and his disciples having a theological discussion. They're walking along and they see this man that was born blind. And obviously that's a a defect, you know, a bad defect. I mean, think about it. How could you get around and do anything of, of value in this world if you couldn't see? I mean, you're totally dependent on people to get you around. I mean, there's not much, by the way, of work that you could do, especially in this time. So you were totally dependent on others. I mean, this is a great handicap. And the thought came to his disciples. Wow, that's got to be, a, I mean, God's the one who ordained this man that he was born blind. Why? Why did this occur? Did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? Why? Why was he born blind? And the Lord says, verse 3, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Now, again, we have to read things in context, right? Is this the one sinless man we have in the world with sinless parents? No. But the point is that for this blindness, there was no particular sin involved that caused God to make the man blind. That's what the sense of this passage is. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And he talks about how he came to do the works of God. Then, verse 6, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the man, the blind man, with the clay, and said unto him, Go. Washed in the pool Siloam. Which is by interpretation sent. The word Siloam means sent. He went his way therefore and washed. And came seeing. Jesus Christ wasn't content with just making a theological point. He healed the man. He healed the man. Now. We'll go through and look at what occurred, but think about it. Keep that in your mind. This is not just an abstract theological point. Jesus Christ picked this particular man. Were there other blind men in Israel at this time? Oh, I'm sure there were lots of them. But this particular man, he healed. Then the neighbors, verse 8, Therefore, And they, which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? I mean, obviously, he'd be very different. I don't know if you've ever been around a blind man. In high school, uh, from my freshman through senior year, I was best friends to a, a blind man. Very intelligent, but he was blind. And, you know, a lot of times you think you hear the sticks that they use. He didn't use that, he used echo sounding. He'd walk around. And he got to where he could hear. He's deaf in one ear too, by the way, but he he could hear the sound bouncing back from objects around him and navigate based on that. He could hear people's footsteps, say so he would come downstairs, and about nine times out of ten, after a couple of weeks, could tell you who it was by the sound of their feet, the sound of the how heavy and the speed with which they would come down. My point being there, you know, they're not like us. They're not just walking around, you know. They, you know, they, they'd be feeling around or have something in front of them. All of a sudden, though, here's this guy just walking right up to them. You know, they're used to seeing him, you know, feeling around. All of a sudden, he's walking right up to him and talking to them. So in their minds, it's like, you sure look like so-and-so, but. Man, I mean, you see. What happened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said unto him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. I don't know where he is. And I hope you don't think I'm reading anything in there by the enthusiasm. I mean, what would you be like if you'd been blind all your life and suddenly you could see? Then they said unto him, where is he? He said, I know not. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees, excuse me, him that aforetime was blind. You know, this wonderful miracle. Let's go to the religious leaders and let them tell us what's going on. Huh. Takes him to the Pharisees. And don't you love Holy Spirit commentary in here to help you understand things? The next verse is just that. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened the eyes. So by now you should know, uh uh-oh, trouble's coming. Trouble's coming because what the Pharisees believe in? Oh, the Sabbath day is holy. You should do no work on the Sabbath day. Meaning they had it down to how many steps could you walk on the Sabbath day. You went further than that, you violated the Sabbath. It's called a Sabbath day's journey. You know, X amount of walking is incidental and okay on the Sabbath, but beyond, I don't know, 5,000 steps or half a mile, whatever it was, you go farther than that, you've violated the Sabbath. And again, did the Pharisees care one whit? No, it was a nice little rule that they could show that, see, we keep all these little rules, so we're holy. We're better than all you sinners. Because we know God's law and we keep it so well. Just ask us. We'll tell you. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay upon mine eyes and I washed and do see. Now, amongst normal people, that would be good enough, right? No. Stop right here, brethren. Without the eyes of the spirit. We would react the same way as we're about to see the Pharisees react. You know, these atheists that say, well, if God would just do some great miracle in front of me, I'd believe it. They're lying out of their teeth. If they can't look at a sunrise, if they can't look at flowers blooming, trees growing, if they can't feel their hearts beating and realize that, you know, I'm taking an oxygen. How did all this stuff come about? If they can't look at that and realize and hit their knees and say, thank you, God, for giving me another breath. If they can't see that, they're not. Do you know what would happen if all of a sudden God in some format showed up and, you know, levitated a bench? They'd go over there and look for the wires. That's what they would do. They're natural men with natural sight, and they're going to look for natural explanations. Because they cannot, will not conceive of spiritual things. So what do the Pharisees say? This man is not of God. Because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Excuse me? You know, I, I love what our Lord reasoned another time with them when they talked about, you know, their... Aghast uh, 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 that he had actually healed a man, a, wither, a man with a withered hand. He healed him on the Sabbath day, and his answer to them was, "Look, guys, which one of you, if you've got an ass or a cow that falls in a ditch on the Sabbath day, you gonna leave him there? No, you go and you pull him out on the Sabbath day, right? You know, do you feed your animals on the Sabbath day? Of course you do. So how much better when this child of Abraham has had his." Hand restored, holy. You know, why shouldn't you rejoice in that? Others said, "How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles?" See, there was a little bit of sense in some of them. I won't say how much, but you know, well, if he's a true sinner, how can he heal like this? Because of all the miracles that were done. Think of the miracles that were done in the Old Testament. Were people raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Uh-huh. We have the instance of Elisha who was after he was dead and in the grave. A man touched his bones one time and sprang back to life. Okay? We have serpent handling, right, in the Old Testament. Moses, you know. We have faith healing in the Old Testament. same Moses, right? Stick his hand in, bring it out. Leprous, one of the signs he showed to Pharaoh. Stick it in, bring it back out, wholly new again. All of these were done in the Old Testament. But you do not see one blind man ever have his sight restored in the Old Testament. This was a new miracle that had never been done before in the history of Israel. And Jesus did it many times in his ministry. So one of them realized, hey guys, this is something new. And there was a division because of him. See? And Jesus Christ will always bring division, brethren. Don't think he won't. They say unto the blind man again, Why sayest thou of him that, What sayest thou of him that he opened thine eyes? And this guy by this time, I mean, What would you be like? What would you be like if you'd been healed? Of something like this. I mean, your mind's just racing, isn't it? Well, He's got to be a prophet of God. At least he's a prophet of God that did this. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. See, rather than putting, I mean, that's the reasonable conclusion. Oh, well then, you really weren't blind to start with, right? You were just a faker. So they bring in the parents, and the parents come in and say, you know, was this the man? Is this your son? Yes, this is our son. it's almost like a courtroom proceeding. It's really funny if you think about it. The way, at least I read it here in Scripture, you know. Is this your son? Yes, that's our son. Do you say he was born blind? Yeah, yeah, he was born blind. We've got the witnesses who know the corner where he normally sat and begged. How'd he healed now? If that's the case. We don't know. But he's old enough, ask him. And then the next couple of passages tell you. They already knew what was the politically correct thing to say and what was not. And it was not politically correct to say that Jesus Christ is anything but a sinner. So they weren't going to get caught up in that because the Pharisees had already determined anybody who wants to profess Jesus Christ is anything but a sinner, you're out of the synagogue. You're out of our official form of worship. Get out. Parents didn't want that, so, son, you're on your own. He come, they come to him, well, tell us again, what happened? And by this time, he's starting to see what's going on. He's starting to see what's going on, you know, and he's getting a little tired of things. So it's like, hey guys, I told you once before, didn't you hear me? Oh, do you want me to kill once more because you want to be his disciples just like me? And of course, I mean, I, he, had, he knew what was going on. That was a goad to them. And of course they react, you know, we're not his disciples, we're Moses' disciples. We know all about Moses and the great things he did. We don't know about this man. And then, oh, don't you love simple faith, brethren? A little bit of scriptural knowledge that this man had being a Jew, being in the temple on occasion, and knowing what had happened to him. And he, well, that's really amazing. You don't know where he's from. We know that God doesn't hear sinners. And we know that no blind man has ever been healed before. He's got to be somebody from God. You guys don't understand that? And of course, they fulfilled what, they had, what his parents knew would happen. They say, "You, what are you? You're some sort of sinner. You're not as good as us. How are you going to teach us? Get out of here. And kick him out. And if the story ended there, brethren, it would be a wonderful story. But it's better than that. Because then, our Lord Jesus Christ came to seek him out. Jesus didn't, wasn't content with just healing the man. Jesus Christ wanted to confirm that man. It tells us then, Down in verse 35, when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Lord came back to give him the opportunity to meet him face to face because before what was it he, he, he was blind you know and the Lord put the, the mud on you know and he went to wash away before he could see the Lord so the Lord came back so he could confirm who he was to him he could confirm that personal relationship with him like I said this is not just a theological point the Lord was trying to get across the Lord came to deliver that man he delivered him from his blindness, and he established a relationship with him. Turn back to Luke 19 now. Luke 19. Different story. Different circumstance. Here we have Jesus. He's going through different cities. Crowds are all around him. They're following him everywhere he goes. They're coming, people are thronging to see him. He comes in the city of Jericho, and there's a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, as we look in this account, tells us a couple things about him. One, he was the chief of the publicans. Okay? That meant he was in charge of the Jericho tax district. He was the chief IRS agent of the locale. Okay? We all know how popular taxes, tax agents, government agents who collect money from you are in our day and age. It was much worse back then. Who was he collecting taxes for? He was collecting taxes for Caesar. The Jews were a subjugated people. They were under the thumb of Rome. And a tax collector, if he needed to, he had the authority to call out the local centurion and his band to help collect taxes. So a Jew that was working with the Romans to collect taxes, that was not a very well-liked profession. You could have been a prostitute probably and be more accepted than, than being a tax collector. He was rich. Again, it wasn't like we have now where the IRS has all these, you know, equations and things by which you do. Basically, what would happen is that Rome would say, Judea, we need X amount of money, X amount of gold. They could care less how you went about collecting it. okay? so that, you know, you could go out and collect whatever the percentage was. But see, the people you're collecting from, they didn't know what Rome was asking for. All they knew is that you were Rome's representative asking for the taxes. So you could collect whatever you wanted, however much you wanted. So most tax collectors were rather wealthy. Because they would collect what Rome needed and then some for their needs and their desires and their wishes. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He came to see Jesus. Now, imagine... You know, we're not talking about it being tax season and needing to be collected from. We're talking about just on the average street, right? And here's this crowd, you know, Jesus is coming down the way. How much chance do you think Zacchaeus had? Oh, the other thing is, he was short. I mean, whatever the average height was, he was significantly below it. So he's coming to see Jesus and, you know... You can't, you you know, I mean, can't you imagine what it'd be like, you know, you know, ah, there's Jesus, you know, hey, you know, everybody's in the way and nobody's getting out of his way so he can see what's going on. So what does he do? He says, well, you know, this is a tree line boulevard. I'm going to get ahead of the crowd. I'm going to climb one of the trees so at least I can see him when he comes by. And think about it. He wanted to see Jesus. The Lord had already done a work in his life, hadn't he? Otherwise, why should he even want to see him? Pharisees didn't want to see him. Roman centurions could care less about him. But this man wanted to see Jesus. In a crowd like that, he was almost, it could have been a danger of (laughs) his life. Depending on which of the people he collected taxes from were nearby. He risked it all so he could go see Jesus. So he climbs up in the tree. He's got his nice perch up there watching and as he comes down, it tells us in verse five, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must abide at thy house. Amen. Wow. Jesus wanted to be with Zacchaeus and you've got to look at it from both perspectives What would you be if you were that little man up in that tree? And suddenly, here is the Jesus you've been looking for, and He wants to be at your house today. Oh, how your heart would swell up with joy, wouldn't it? Think about everybody else around Him. You want to be with Him. You want to be with Zacchaeus, this sinner. And I'm sure there was no small little discussion about that. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured saying that he's gone to be a guest with a man that's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord. He heard what was going on. He knew what his reputation was like. And how does he react? He's got a confrontation with the Lord now. And the Lord doesn't have to say a word to him. He knows what he's like. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. He knew he was in the presence of his Lord. He knew what his Lord expected. And he voluntarily walked up to do it. Lord, I know. I've read your scriptures. You care for the poor and needy. Here, half my goods I give to them. I mean, the Lord never... Where did the Lord say, give half your goods? I don't remember a passage like that. I see individual tithes, which are a tenth at times being given for the poor. Half your goods, that's 50%. Any man that I've taken anything from, inappropriately, I'll pay him back four times the amount. Now, quick question for those who like to look in Scripture and find, you know, things of what you got to do to get eternally saved, because what does it then say? Jesus says, verse 9, and Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Does that mean to get saved? You got to give half your goods? You know, and pay anybody back fourfold? No, that's not what the intent is here. He was already a born again child of God. He already was a child of Abraham. He's just demonstrating that nature. Because the nature of Abraham was to be generous, was to be good to the poor. That's how our Father in Heaven is, right? So Zacchaeus had an opportunity to display that nature. And he did it. He did it. The fact that he was a saved man was manifest that day by what he did. He showed forth the nature of his father, Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus defended him. Jesus defended him in front of the crowd. With everybody there. You're going to lunch with that sinner? Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've I've taken anything wrongly from somebody, I'll pay him back four times. This is a child of Abraham. Of course I'm going to go to lunch with him. Of course I'm going to go with one of my children. What's the lesson we can learn from these three encounters, brethren? Think about Josiah. He was tender-hearted. Isn't that how the Lord sent back to him? Because thine heart was tender when thou heard. Brethren, how tender are our hearts when we see the claims of God's word. When we see something there and we realize, that's not me. I haven't lived that way. Is our heart tender? Does that tear us up? So that we want to change things around. Does that lead us to great zeal in purging sin from our life? Josiah did it in the kingdom. Do we do that in our lives? Does that lead us to great zeal in his worship? I mean, the greatest Passover ever done was under Josiah. Why? Because he wanted to show off? No, he loved the Lord. The Lord had promised him great things. The Lord had told him, you're delivered. Yes, I'm mad. Yes, I'm furious at this nation. But you are delivered, Josiah. You're my son. I'm with you. You're going to have peace when you go to your grave. You're not going to see all this. Hey, Lord, what can I do for you? What can I clean up? What can I give you in sacrifice? Nothing's too much. That's what we see in a Josiah. And you see, it doesn't matter that he was a king. All that being a king meant was he had a lot of things very visible to get cleaned up that he was responsible for. What am I responsible for in my life? What do I do about cleaning those things up and taking care of them? How about the man born blind? He was grateful for God's deliverance, wasn't he? I mean, everywhere he went, he was ready to tell them, he put the clay on my eyes and I washed my feet. Do you know who the son of, you know, do you want to believe on the son of God? Oh yes. Where is he that I can believe on him? I'm standing right before you. Here I am. Oh, my Lord. And he worshipped him. After defending his Lord's honor with what little he knew. He wasn't a theologian. He was dealing with theologians. All he took was a few little things he knew. But he was ready to stand on that. He was ready to stand and be counted. And it didn't matter that he was going to be cast out. It didn't matter that his own mother and father, you know the efforts they had to take in life to take care of him. Right? He was a cripple. He couldn't see. Yet when push came to shove, they abandoned him. Didn't faze him. Didn't slow him down. He was going to defend his Lord. He was fearless in following the Lord. And he was continuing... And it didn't matter what everybody else thought around him. Didn't matter what the crowd, didn't matter what his peers thought. He was going to follow the Lord. Zacchaeus? I mean, with all of his wealth, he had one burning desire. He wanted to see Jesus Christ. He wanted to see him. Look at the joy he had in receiving the Lord's invitation to go out to have to take him to lunch. And look at the thoroughness of his obedience. He knew, oh yeah, to entertain Jesus, I've got to be the right kind of person. Oh, there's, there's people that are going to impugn my Lord because I'm going to take him to lunch? I've got to set this matter right. I've got to make things right with everybody around me. So that he's not impugned. Brethren, these are some things I hope we can learn from these examples. I hope they encourage your hearts. I love Josiah because I was religiously, zealously following a lie. And the Lord converted me. So I can identify with him. You know, I love that man born blind. I mean, with what little he knew, he was ready to defend his Lord. And didn't matter what anybody else was going to say. That's all that mattered to him was to defend his truth. And Zacchaeus, he just wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to be with him, and he was ready to give up all that wealth everybody thought was so important that he had. He was ready to get rid of it. Didn't matter to him. He wanted to make sure that Jesus was pleased with what he's with him. May that guide and direct our lives, brethren. May we be. Take encouragement from this and take instruction from this in what kind of people we need to be.